0: In this episode of the Life Imperative podcast, I speak with celebrated Canadian author Marina Namat about her human rights activism and how important human rights are to a global community. Hello, Marina. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast today. How are you?
1: Lovely to speak with you, Scott. Thank Thank you. you.
0: Many people will know you as the um, celebrated Canadian author to best-selling memoirs, Prisoner of Tehran, which has been published in 27 countries. And then the... Actually,
1: 29. 29
0: right now. now. Excellent. And um, the follow-up after Tehran. You know, so most people will know you from those two memoirs. But what I really wanted to have a conversation with you about today was sort of all the uh, human rights activism that you're involved in um, and why these human rights organizations are are so important to, you know, our global community?
1: Uh, Well, uh, you know, coming from where I come from, I mean, as uh, a... woman, as a person, as a human being who uh, was a prisoner of conscience. Now, back then we called them political prisoners, but, you know, now we call them prisoner of conscience. These these are people who uh, usually in um, dictatorships, they stand up for what they believe in, for human rights, for freedom of expression, for freedom of the religion for gender equality, et cetera, et cetera. It could be anything, basically any kind of uh, human rights values, and then they end up in prison. So in Iran, I was 16 when I was arrested because I spoke out when I saw that the rights of people, especially the rights of women, were being taken away after the Islamic Republic um, we, well, I had grown up under the shahm of the shah before the success of the islamic revolution 1979 in iran i had grown up in a secular society uh a, well a society that was governed by secular laws it was a dictatorship it was a political dictatorship in the sense that uh, you couldn't really criticize the government but people had personal freedoms so as a young woman I could go to school, school was free, even universities were free. And I could become a medical doctor, I could become a lawyer, I could become a judge, I could become the prime minister as long as I was a good student. You didn't need to be rich because, again, school was free. Uh, so, and, and I, I mean, I could wear a bikini on the beach. I was hmm. um, publicly, I mean, with my friends on the beach, we would take our boom boxes and we would be dancing to the tunes of the BGs, uh, you know, again, the girls in the bikinis, the boys in their oh. swim shorts. And, you know, we we were watching the Donny and Mary Osmond show and The Little House on the Prairie, and I was reading Jane Austen and Ernest Hemingway and C.S. Lewis uh, alongside a lot of Persian poetry and literature. So uh, when the Islamic Revolution happened, it didn't deliver the political freedoms it had promised, and it took away the um, personal freedom. So I spoke out. and not violently so as a 16 year old girl I was not violent at all and neither were my friends we would basically go to protest rallies and just yell and scream about what we believed was wrong in our society the fact that dancing had become illegal singing had become illegal and wearing the hijab, the Islamic covering had become mandatory Mm -hmm. whether you were Muslim or not whether you believed or not so we protested uh, again, not in a violent or crazy way, but just going on the street and having banners and that sort of thing. And we were attacked every time by Re- the Revolutionary Guard, the police of the revolution. And we were arrested by thousands and put put away. So I'm not going to get into the details of what happened in prison the two years that I was in there. Horrible things. But um, and when I was released, I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Of course, it wasn't diagnosed at the time because I never saw a therapist. Any therapist who saw me would probably end up in jail himself himself or herself. So the the message that my family and the society, basically the Iranian society gave me was move along. Never happened. You're fine. You survived. A lot of my friends had died in prison. Uh, buried in mass graves, but I had left. So my family's message was, and this was the whole society. I mean, Iran had become a huge prison. Uh, even though I was released, I was still in prison. I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't ask, well, why did you do this to me? Anyhow. So all of this uh, accumulated and eventually five years later, after my release, I made it to Canada and I still had PTSD, but I wasn't showing any symptoms because PTSD is a silent killer. Mm -hmm. It can go undetected because people might seem completely normal and they are not. But these symptoms would appear. Sometimes there's nothing. And then suddenly somebody who looks normal goes and jumps off the bridge. In my case, I had a psychotic episode. Again, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but uh, it became evident that I had problems and I had to address them. And uh, I did. I mean, I, I, you know, I did a lot of things. Again, I was going to get into details and I wrote two books and it was one of my ways to deal with uh, my PTSD Uh, bearing witness to what had happened in Iran, to my friends, to those who had died and those who survived, but still don't have a voice because they still live in Iran. I just had to put it on paper so that it was off my chest. But but one of the consequences of this, I was looking for closure, never got it. Closure is the most stupid word in the English dictionary, but I never got it. I mean, I just realized that the only thing I can do with my post-traumatic stress disorder is to manage it and management is a key word. You have to balance yourself somehow. You learn, you acquire tools that help you balance it. It will never go away. It might go into some sort of a remission, but that's it. And I realized that uh, I, uh, you know, when I went on book tour and what happened was that uh, I kept getting invitations to speak for uh, high school students, to speak for university kids, to speak for conferences, you know, all over the world. And and I realized that people really wanted to listen to what I had to say.
0: Well, and I think when, when you speak, you don't you don't hold anything back. You're very open about what happened. And I think that's what makes your story so powerful.
1: Whatever that might be, I'm driven, I'm driven to do this. And I realized that, uh, you know, I, I, I had this trip that I went to the Vancouver area and Vancouver Islands and whatnot. And in one of, uh, it was a very intense trip and a lot of talks, high schools, etc. And in one day, I remember I gave like, it was insane. I gave like five talks hmm. full, like an hour each at least, and then questions. But basically I was talking all day. And at night when I got to my room, I went to bed and I was staring at the ceiling and I felt literally extremely nauseated. And I I was exhausted out of my wits, but I couldn't close my eyes. And I realized that I had just pushed myself too hard. And and then, but when when I also do the opposite, I mean, I take time off, right? I don't do anything. I'm just you know somewhere, and let's say you know at the cottage or something. I feel the same. I mean, I, I can't sleep at night. I would be staring at the ceiling. I feel nauseated. I just feel bad. So I realized that again, it's all about balance, about management. So I I always tell people, you know, I can do a maximum of two talks a day, not more. Even when I'm traveling, I cannot do more than two. Okay, if you push me, it's three, but definitely not more. And I realized that I need to be doing things. So I give so many talks, but Alongside that, human rights organizations, like let's say Amnesty International, PEN Canada, uh, there is a human rights foundation in the United States that runs the Oslo Freedom Forum and the Victus Freedom Foundation in Norway Mm -hmm. that uh, helps female political prisoners and others. They reached out to me. They said, would you help us with this project or that? Would you campaign, for example, uh, on our project that has to do with victims of torture or um, political prisoners, Uh uh, prisoners of conscience? And, And I kind of got sucked into it. I mean, it just took me into this world of various organizations that do various things at various in various fronts to fight injustice and stand up for the rights of the person. And I realized that I like it. Great. I mean, it, it is I'm not employed by any of them. and that's the beauty of it. because when nobody's paying you, And I always tell them I don't fundraise. It has nothing to do with money, and that's Mm -hmm. the beauty. So I tell them, if you need me to do work for you, I mean, stuff, uh, I I do it. Uh, So I got involved with all these human rights organizations who do very different things, and they do them all over the world. I even got involved with small groups of citizens uh, in various parts of the world that do really good work and nobody has ever heard of them.
0: So tell us a a bit about something like that, something that somebody might not be aware of, but an organization who's doing good work, somebody that you respect from your point of view.
1: Well, there are so many of them because I find that a lot of people like me, like, you know, people who have authors, uh, authored books or, you know, that, that publicly uh, their name is kind of recognized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are invited to go on the CBC, you know, on the BBC, right. on, you know, right. in New York Times or, you know, whatever, that, you know, people do come to us and ask for our opinion. I realize that a lot of my friends and colleagues uh, like me, people like me, they start their own organizations. I mean, almost everybody I know, they have started their own organization. And then when I look around me, there are just so many of them. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of organizations. And then when I look at them, I see many of them do very similar things. And this kind of frustrated me because I felt that they are very disconnected from each other. Yeah. So you're doing very similar work, but they never talk to each other. And then I realized that, you know, maybe this huge number of organizations is just it's too much. So I thought, you know, how can I use my abilities um, the best way? And then I thought, okay, so I will pick um, a number of organizations that I believe are doing good work. And, you know, probably on the top of my list is the Canadian Centre for Victims of Torture or CCVT that has been around for like 40 years. And uh, it works as the name stands with victims of torture, but not only, also with survivors of genocide or basically with refugees. And this is a Toronto organization, even though there is a network, an international network of such centers, but they are really, um, they're connected, but they have different managements. So here in Toronto, we, we now have uh, the CCBT has three locations and one of them is in downtown Toronto. And I, I'm on the board of directors. I'm the co-chair. And uh, the beauty, again, the beauty of it is because I don't get paid and it's a volunteer job, I do all sorts of things that I'm very good at. So sometimes when people ask me, what do you do? I say I connect the dots. So one of the things that I do is um, I try to bring these organizations together as much as possible when the opportunity arises and get them to work together to use each other's resources as much as, as, as possible. I mean, because I know them all and I have worked with them all. And uh, not all, but you know, the big ones, right, right. the big ones, the, the known names. And I can always connect them. So so that was and I always tell people, you know, because when I give talks, people say, so, you know, how do I make the world a better place? And I always tell them, listen, you cannot fix the world by tomorrow or next week. But what we can do is we can just improve things one small bit at a time. So when people call me and they want to volunteer, let's say for Penn Canada, because I'm the chair of Writers in Exile Committee, basically these are writers who had to leave their lives and in their countries of birth because of some crazy dictatorship, wanted to kill them or put them in jail or has, had to put them in jail and then they, they got out. So they had to escape. And I work with them. I work with these people who have made it to Canada. Sometimes they haven't made it to Canada. They are stuck in some godforsaken part of the planet. And I, I try again because I know I have worked with so many organizations internationally. And I have learned uh, from them. And I have gotten to know people. So I have contacts. So when uh, a case comes to me through whoever or whatever, I look at it. I research it. And then I go to the organizations that I think can best help. Wow. And it's amazing how when you know all of this, you know, I'm basically a walking, talking database Mm -hmm. of uh, human rights organizations. So, but I know them. I mean, these are my friends. These are people who trust me. These are people that I trust. So when I go to them and I say, listen, there's so-and-so case and I have looked at it and it looks pretty legit. And this is like a writer with a track record and he's stuck, let's say, in some, I don't know, some country. And we need to get this person to a safe country. Now, sometimes bringing that person directly to Canada might not be an option. I mean, it it takes time. But, you know, I have an an international network that can usually, not always, I mean, you fail, you succeed. Uh, sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it's quicker. I mean, some of the cases that I have worked with, they have not succeeded, but there is a success rate that's not that bad. So okay. uh, this, is, this is basically uh, what I, do. I always tell people, you know, look at your talents and if you want to get involved with human rights organizations, there is a large number of them in Canada. And even right here in Canada, there is so much need. I mean, yes, it's, we, we live in a democratic free country, but we do have our problems. So you don't have to go overseas to be effective right? and to make the world a better place. Start small and then you can
0: expect. So help me understand that a bit more. The the, the problems that maybe within Canada we're not quite aware of, something that I, I, I myself would not be aware of. Is there some something that you can discuss there?
1: oh, gosh, Scott, there are just so many, you know, and uh, they are right under our noses. And I'm not saying that we don't necessarily know that they're there because I think, you know, unless you live in a cave in Canada, uh, you would have heard about these issues. But a lot of times because these are not our problems, you know, we would say this is not my problem. We just walk by them. And I'm going to give you an example. Actually, um, just A few days ago, I was downtown Toronto and I was having coffee before I had to go somewhere. And I got out of the coffee shop and I saw a man, a homeless man, just sitting by the road uh, on the sidewalk looking just... You know, just looking at him, like even when I talk now, um, it breaks my heart. There was so much sadness. You know, Mm -hmm. there was, he was just quietly sitting on the side of the road and he had a dog and I have a dog and there was this beautiful big dog sitting next to him, so kind. There was just something so sad about them, you know, just so sad. And, And then, you know, the next day, because I had to be in the same neighborhood, I just went to the store and I got some dog food. Oh, wow. Great. And some stuff, you know, for the dog because I thought, you know, what 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 about the dog? But that's really a bandit. But imagine if you know there are organizations out there who work with the homeless, and I read a while ago somewhere in the UK. Now I, I'm going to talk to my vet and see if this is if this happens here too. But there are certain veterinarians that um, I know in the UK they treat the dogs and the pets of uh, homeless people. You know the needs. I mean, okay, how do you fix the homeless issue? I mean, okay, giving money to the homeless. Okay, I know that doesn't fix anything. I mean, the guy could go and get himself a sandwich. Maybe he will go to the LCBO and get a bottle of vodka. Maybe he will he will spend it on drugs. I'm not in that line of work, working with a homeless, but I think that is a huge issue. I mean, no one who lives in Toronto can say they don't know.
0: Right.
1: We, we need to do something about it. Look at the situation of affordable, there is no affordable housing. What affordable housing? What are, so, I mean, the number of problems in our communities, we know them. But when they are not my problem, I usually don't get involved.
0: Yeah. It's hard, it's hard. It's harder to feel the, you know, the daily impact.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I always tell, you know, we are busy, but, but, you know, when I care about something for whatever reason, when I care about something, I get things done. Now, the problem, so I guess, is that a lot of times people don't really care. Sometimes people want to care, not that they're (laughs) bad. People are people. (laughs) People are people. But they just do not. I think there needs to be some sort of emotional trigger that would catapult literally someone from, I don't care, into, into, oh my God. How do I fix this?
0: Right. Well, that's why we're here today, hopefully, to, you know, be able to speak about this and create some of that awareness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, again, it's not hard. It's not necessarily very difficult. And I mean, if you look at a lot of these people, organizations that have changed the world for the better, big time, they started from nothing. They just started with an idea. Hmm. And whether they created their own organization or they decided to work with others to make the world a better place. I mean, and this is this when we make the world a better place. Let's not forget that you and I also live in the same world. Yeah. We don't live on Mars. Right. Right. When we make the world a better place, we are going to benefit from it. And I think one of the things that is now uh, painful to watch, let's say, in the United States, uh, more than anywhere. We, it's just so uh, flashing with, in neon. Uh, but in Canada as well. I mean, I see it in Europe all the time. There is this sense of, in our societies, and I think the internet and Twitter and you know all of that, they can magnify that, is me, 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 me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that sense of community, that sense of let's help each other out, no matter what skin color, what sexual orientation, what religion.
0: Yeah, or, or your socioeconomic level.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it, it is it, it is important, I think, to counter that mentality of I want to live well. I want to get rich. And I'm going to walk on everybody's back and destroy other people. Uh, They have no right. I have every right. And this is me, me, me. This is mine, mine, mine. And the hell with everybody else. And um, let's just do that at any cost. And I think that is a dangerous thing to do that has severe consequences and sometime down the road we'll all be paying for
0: that yeah and and even you say sometime down the road it seems like a long long time away but i I don't think it's that far away if if something doesn't change with the way we feel about the people around us it's not going to be that long before we end up like some other places that aren't canada
1: yeah and I think what I have come to learn from uh, my experiences and traveling around the world is uh, in democratic countries, we live in Canada, we are very lucky. I mean, Canada saved my life and uh, when I had nowhere to go. And I really believe it is my duty to serve Canada the best way I can. Wow. And, and I, I, all my travels and all the experience and all of that, they have taught me that the most important thing in a democratic society, as a society, is the rule of law. And that law needs to treat everyone, everyone, regardless of religion, gender, whatnot, regardless of anything, equally.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when someone, another human being, is uh, of a different sex in color, different sexual orientation, different religion, they have the same rights as I do. And the law that protects me has to protect them, even if it is the unpopular thing to do. You know, if you look at history, I mean, what Hitler did and what other huge big time mass murderer, sociopath dictators have done, is that they dehumanize the enemy. Right. And the moment we dehumanize the other, the moment the other becomes the other that doesn't deserve what I deserve because of religion. Again, it doesn't matter because of what. The moment that happens, uh, the society basically is digging a hole and... uh, is going to bury itself in it, and it's going to be a long time before it can dig itself out of that. Uh, we we tend not to learn from history, we, you know, we read about these big uh, dictators and people who did horrible things, but we forget that evil is uh, not stupid. You know, we we assume that evil is stupid. Evil is not stupid at all. Evil is actually very intelligent in a very evil way. And, you know, that's the thing. You know, we forget that evil can masquerade uh, and show itself to the world as the good.
0: Yeah. And and we also sometimes, I think, forget that we're living in history right now. Like it's somebody's history. So how do we want to be able to look back and... You know be known for this time how do we want the people in the future to to be able to look back and say you know in the year 2000 the year 2010 2020 this is this is what was was happening
1: yeah exactly and and you know I uh, a christian i was yep. born a christian a family and uh i'm i'm a catholic i do not at all agree with all of the ideas and policies and whatnot of the catholic church i believe that a woman should be allowed to become a priest or become the pope or you know what then Now, I don't cut and run from the church because I believe then who's going to change it? You know, so I have Mm. to stay and I have to persevere and I have to fight what I believe is wrong. You know, church is not God. Church is a bunch of people getting together. So it can do evil. It has done evil and all of that. But again, I think it's my duty to stand up for that community and help it find this way and, you know, become better. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, growing up, I always was amazed because my grandmother was a devout woman and she really believed in God and goodness and all of that. And she always, you know, quoted from the Bible that, you know, love your enemy. And that always, uh, you know, I always questioned, how can you possibly love your enemy? I mean, when I was little, the kids in my school who had been mean to me, I mean, in little ways, there was little things. I had difficulty uh, liking those kids. Yeah. And as I got older, I, I think the wisdom of that, uh, I think basically it does translate into the same thing that, you know what, the rule of law, uh, the rights of the person, it has to be for everyone. Right. So my enemy, no matter... How, how much I hate my enemy and how horrible my enemy is and how awful it is. I mean, if I take it upon myself to seek revenge against that enemy, I'm going to go down to hell with it. And I'm going to be taking the world into hell with me because that is where wars and genocides and whatnot, basically, I would be putting fuel into that fire. Right. No. Um,
0: Yeah. I think if we, you know, we recognize who our enemies are and and what they, if they don't stand for the things that we stand for, as far as that humanity across all all people, um, you know, there's some ways that I guess we have to, you know, deal with that. But uh, at the, at the bottom line, we are all just humans and we, we, there is some sort of human right to to everything.
1: There is. I mean, uh, the people who tortured me, let's say, in prison, people who tortured me and who did horrible things to me and my friends. I mean, they killed my friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, These people, if my torturers were ever, I mean, it's been many years, I don't think they'll ever be caught, but let's say if they were, And the people who are right now torturing Iranians in in prison or in other prisons in Iran, if they were ever caught, would I want them to suffer? Because what they did to me was beyond suffering and what they did to me, yes, it was when I was 16 to 18 years old, but I'm still in pain as a result of it. I'm still in pain Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. So it's ongoing. If they gave them to me and said, do to them whatever you want, I would hand them over to a just justice system, not to the system in Iran, because that's not just, but I would hand them over to an independent uh, international court system if I could. And I would want them to be tried fairly. I would want them to have good lawyers because that, you know, I didn't have any lawyers. I I didn't even have one lawyer, good or bad, Mm -hmm. when I was in Avin because I didn't have the right to a lawyer. But, but, I'm better than them. So, I mean, that is what revenge does. I want my enemies to understand what they did, but I don't want to do that, um, By doing stuff that they did to me, Mm -hmm. I would never torture them. Right, right. I would never uh, put them in solitary confinement for six months so that they cannot see the light of day. Mm. And I would want them to have access to, you know, to information, to, you know, to a certain degree control, to, to the internet. And I would like them to be in a prison where they have exercise time or where, where they have, you know, if they have medical needs, it would be met. Right. And Where they would be educated, they, they would see therapists and they would see doctors and they would receive some education, not education in the form of torture and intimidation yeah. and God knows what, but in a humane way and i believe in that i strongly believe in that even though my emotions sometimes tell me no 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 they made you suffer you should make it no 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 because then i will become just like them
0: right yeah no i think we, we there's definitely a line there between how we emotionally respond to things and how we can add reason to it and you, you know it, it comes back to like you said the greater good if we can get Uh, Anybody, you know, the proper education, the proper medical, mental health um, professionals, we can actually show them, you know, what they've done wrong.
1: Yeah, they can. And I mean, in some cases, I mean, with people who commit crimes against humanity, uh, you know, I guess it's open to discussion. Maybe some of Of them could actually be practically rehabilitated. I mean, it is certainly a possibility. I do not say no. But if these people are going to be put away in jail and whatever, whatever the law finds fit in a just way, the reasoning behind that should never be to inflict suffering. Right. Because suffering, it never... Should be the destination. The moment sub causing suffering becomes a destination, I think if we look around us, we realize we are in hell. Hmm. And um, so I do what I do because I believe uh, in trying at least to make the world a better place. Um, you know, one small step at a time.
0: That's all we can do. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Marina. I know you have a hard stop here, so I will let you go. And I really appreciate the talk and the time. And I'll post a link to your website and a link to some of the um, organizations that you mentioned. And let's see if we can make a difference.
1: Okay. Thank you so much,
0: Scott.